Good morning. It's good to see you. I'm Pastor Jason, and if you are uh, just visiting with us this morning, you haven't been around, uh, what we are doing for our time in God's Word uh, each Sunday is we are working our way through the book of Ephesians. This is a, a New Testament letter written by the Apostle Paul, and the reason we have chosen Ephesians for this fall is because we recently rolled out a new vision, mission, and value statement. And when we did so, we uh, said that all of that content is rooted in the book of Ephesians. So basically what we're doing this fall is we are working our way through a vision series, which all comes from the book of Ephesians. And this is maybe our fourth or fifth uh, sermon now in this series. Uh, and what I have said uh, throughout the series uh, in setting up the passage for each week is that, again, Ephesians was a letter written by the Apostle Paul. Uh, Paul uh, helped to plant uh, a church in the city of Ephesus. Now, when you think of church, you can't just strictly think of what we are doing um, here uh, together this morning, although uh, much of what we're doing in this service would have been happening in uh, Ephesus um, but what I, what I mean is that um, there would have been uh, multiple house churches spread out through the city of Ephesus and beyond. And uh, this is a circular letter. You know, I, I keep saying that. And all that is meant by that is that unlike some of other Paul's other letters in the New Testament, uh, this was not necessarily written uh, to a specific congregation with specific circumstances in mind. Rather, it was more general. And the letter was meant to be distributed among the churches in Ephesus, these house churches, um, as well as beyond, like I said. And what we have encountered so far in this letter is that Paul is using this more general letter as an opportunity to tell the story of God, to tell the story of God, to draw these Ephesian believers more fully into the true story of the world, to find their place in it, to participate in what God is doing in the world. And the intention that was meant for those Ephesians believers back in the day is meant for us as well. As we continue to work our way through Ephesians, God wants to draw us more fully into his grand, beautiful, and glorious story that we might take up our part in that story as we find ourselves today. So what I want to do is I want to read our passage for this morning, and then we will jump into it. Ephesians 3, verses 1 through 13. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, 
which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though, his, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus, our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. Let's pray together. Holy Spirit, come upon us. Open your word. Draw us deeply into this mystery that we might comprehend it and that we might have a greater awareness that we find ourselves in it. And we pray that as we learn of this mystery more fully in this text, Holy Spirit, we pray that you would empower us, that you would send us out from this place to participate in this mystery. We pray that you would do this, that you would come and find us by your power, regardless of where we find ourselves in this particular moment, whether we are believing, disbelieving, or unsure of what we believe. Holy Spirit, draw us in through the word. We pray in Christ Jesus. Amen. The other week, uh, my wife Katie and I had the opportunity to visit Nashville uh, for a conference. Have any of you ever been to Nashville before? You're not that excited about it, but some of you have been there. I know that some of you uh, live there. Uh, Well, here's my, I didn't uh, intend to talk about this, but here's my brief take on Nashville. Really cool city, but overcrowded, way too much traffic. Um, But, you know, that has nothing to do with the sermon. But Nashville, getting back to it. um, We uh, had the opportunity when we arrived in Nashville um, to see some sites before the conference started later that day. So one of the things that we did was we went to visit the Parthenon. Have Have any of you ever been there? few of you. You're a little more excited about the Parthenon than you are about the city of Nashville as a whole. Well, the Parthenon, if you do not know, is a full-scale replica of the original Parthenon that was built in Athens, Greece. I have never seen the the original Parthenon or what remains of it. Um, But as we approached the Parthenon in Nashville, it was somewhat overwhelming. Not in a bad way, but it was overwhelming. It's majestic, it's grand, it's large. And as we uh, got closer and closer to the Parthenon, I began to immediately wonder to myself, how in the world, how in the world was, was such a structure constructed? Now, I would think that even if it was built um, in recent years, but The fact is that the Parthenon was built in the late 1800s. And then when you consider the original Parthenon, you go back in the day, that's even more impressive that um, such a structure was created. But yeah, as I got closer and began to just look up and examine the materials that were used and just how uh, massive this structure is, I just could not help but to wonder, how was this done? 
There was mystery surrounding it for me. How in the world was such a thing created? Well, uh, Katie wanted us to go uh, inside the Parthenon. Um, there's a museum there. Uh, I was a bit reluctant at first, and really the only reason is is just because I honestly was just so overwhelmed by the building. I was overwhelmed on the outside. I couldn't imagine going inside, but eventually we went inside. And uh, as we walked through the course of the museum, the story was told of how this structure was built. In other words, the mystery uh, was revealed. As I stood outside the Parthenon, there was mystery surrounding how such a structure could be created. But as I entered in and learned the story, the mystery became less and less as the story, as the secret behind how it was constructed was revealed. Well, there's something similar going on here in the letter to the Ephesians. Paul, uh, in the first two chapters of this letter, has told the story of God. He's told it from all kinds of different angles. And if nothing else, what we have learned so far, what we've picked up on, is that this story is grand. This story is massive. This story is glorious and beautiful. And as a result, in some ways, maybe even a bit overwhelming. Mystery still surrounds it, doesn't it? We might ask ourselves, what is the point exactly of this story? What is it that God exactly is trying to do in this world? Well, fortunately for us this morning, uh, as we work through this passage together, the mystery is going to be revealed. Uh, there's going to be less and less, hopefully, of a cloud surrounding our understanding of God's story as we are about to be invited into the heart of this story and really what is going on here. And so I'm going to just raise two questions to uh, kind of structure our time together uh, as we work through this. The first is, what is the mystery? And then how is the mystery made known today? All right? What is the mystery? How is it made known today? So what is the mystery? Well, let's begin by looking at verse 1. Paul starts off for this reason. Now, that's a, that, that's a clue for us. It's a cue that um, we should remember what Paul has written prior to this. Now, there are really two options. It could be specifically what he wrote about in verses 11 through 22. That was last week's uh, passage that we looked at. And what we discovered in that passage is that um, God, through Jesus, in the church, is bringing together both Jew and Gentile. That in the person of Jesus Christ, God is destroying all of the barriers that exist between people because through faith in him, we are reconciled to God, and as a result, it should lead to reconciliation among people. Remember, if you were here, we talked about both the vertical and horizontal aspects of reconciliation. So Paul, when he says, for this reason, he could specifically be referring to those uh, verses, but he also could be referring to uh, everything that he has written in the letter up to this point. So th those are our two options, and in some way, they're, they're one and the same. They're not competing against each other. But he begins, for this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ. This is the first time uh, in the letter that we learn that Paul is imprisoned. Paul is imprisoned, and he's going to reference this two more times uh, in the letter. 
Uh, I think when we first began this series, I made mention of that. And it's obviously helpful context, isn't it? That the one who is telling the grand and glorious story of God is doing so while imprisoned because of his belief, his faith, and his willing to align his life with the very story that he's telling in this letter. He says, um, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. When he says, assuming that you have heard, it implies that some of the readers of this letter would not have met Paul at this point. Now, Paul uh, helped to plant the church in Ephesus. He did so along with other partners there in the city. Um, But some time has passed, and there uh, would have been likely... Um, Those who were converted to the Christian faith became followers of Jesus after Paul left, and some of them have never met him in person, although they surely would have known about him and heard about his ministry and um, even his influential role in planning the church that they were a part of. But he uses this word, uh, stewardship, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. Now, this is going to become really important as we... Uh, interpret, interpret the rest of this passage. This word administration, it's not the first word that first time that it has been used in Ephesians. If we go back to um, chapter 1, verse uh, 10, verses 9 and 10, it refers to God's plan. We actually, I want to bring this up on a slide, um, this verse um, for us. You have the, is the slide on? Is that, I think I included that, the, that those verses. Ephesians 1, 9 through 10. Paul, um, in the very beginning uh, of this letter, writes, He has made known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven, and things on earth. When Paul refers to this plan, it's the same uh, form of the word that he's using here with administration. But he's using it a little bit differently here. He has in mind here the idea of stewardship. That, that's the word that is, um, that's how it's translated if you're following the ESV translation. Uh, stewardship or responsibility. What Paul is referring to is that when he came to know God through Jesus, when he placed his belief in Jesus as the Messiah, something happened. Demands were placed on his life. And uh, pretty early on in Paul's conversion and the, the whole process that was going on there, Paul began to realize that he was burdened to reach non-Jewish people with the gospel. This was God's plan for him. It was the administration. And Paul was to be a steward of this calling that God had placed on his life. He was to, he was to be responsible with it. Now, imagine being a uh, in one of the congregations that was hearing this letter read out loud, and you are a Gentile. We talked about this last week. Gentile just simply means non-Jewish person. Christianity started as a Jewish movement. It was birthed out of Judaism. And there was a long history of Jewish people and Gentiles and the division between them. And now that the gospel has, in a very new and fresh way, gone beyond the boundaries, so to speak, of Judaism, and Gentiles are now being invited into the family of God in the church, 
You could imagine that if you were a Gentile um, during this time in the first century, you might wonder, is this really legit? Are, are, are we really accepted? Are, are, are we really a part of the family of God? And for Paul to tell them at the start here in this section that he was, by God, given this calling to reach Gentiles, it, in a way would have assured them of their place in the story, their place in the family. And we're going to hear more about that as we get a little bit further. But I want to now point your attention to verse 3. In verse 3, Paul says, he refers to how the mystery was made known to me by revelation as I have written briefly. In this section, these verses that we're looking at this morning, verses 1 through 13, Paul uses the word mystery four times. That, that's a lot for just 13 verses. Here in verse 3, again in verse 4, verse 6, and then verse 9. And let me just read to you beyond the verse I just read in verse 3, um, how he uses it in those other verses. In verse 4, he says, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ. Verse 6, he begins by saying, this mystery is, and I'm not going to tell you what it is yet because the secret hasn't been revealed yet, okay? Now, it was when I read the passage, but as we're working through it, it's not out in the open quite yet. And then finally, verse 9, Paul refers to the plan of the mystery, hidden for ages. What does this word mystery mean? Now, I want to ask you, when you hear the word mystery, what comes to mind? Go ahead, um, call out answers. When you hear the word mystery, like what's in your head right now? Well, be careful. But what comes to mind? The unknown. The unknown. I heard the unknown and everything else blended together. What else? First thing that came to mind. I told you to do that, but yeah, there's mystery surrounding that. When we think of the word mystery, these are some of the things that come to mind, right? The unknown, the secret, what has yet to be disclosed or revealed. And what we need to acknowledge um, here is that for us to really understand what Paul means by this word, we have to realize that the way that we use this word in English is very different than how the Greeks used this word. In English, when we talk of the mystery, we are speaking of, and some of these things were touched on, um, something that is dark, that's obscure, that's unknown. It's a secret, right? It's a puzzle to be solved. Why is it that we love mysteries? Why is it that we love mystery shows, mystery movies? It's because, I'm sure it's a lot of reasons, but one of the reasons is that we like to be in the position of figuring it out, don't we? We like to use our intellect, our, our ability to uh, piece things together, to connect the dots, um, to solve puzzles. That's how we think of mystery. But the way that mystery was used among the Greeks and the way that Paul is using it here, it's not something that is hidden, but it's a secret that has been revealed. So what Paul is referring to as he speaks of this, this mystery is something that is no longer hidden, but it's out in the open. It's been revealed. And he mentions that this mystery was referred to, that it was foreshadowed in previous generations. And when he talks about that, 
Um, especially in verse 5, he says, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. He is referencing the fact that in the Old Testament, there were prophets and, and others who spoke of this vision. The vision being that what God was doing in the world, his grace was not just ultimately for Jewish people. It was for people of every tribe, nation, and tongue. And and it goes back to the very beginning, to Abraham. God told Abraham that from you, I'm going to create a people, a family, a nation. And the goal, my, my purposes in doing that is to reach not just people who are like you, but to eventually reach the nations. You are meant to be a blessing to the world, to the nations. And so in the Old Testament, um, this was foreshadowed. But when we move into the New Testament, when we, when we get to the coming of Jesus, it, ha- it is brought out into the open in a way that it wasn't in the past. In the coming of Jesus and in the outpouring of the Spirit, something new is happening. Something different is taking place. And the, the holy apostles and prophets, Paul is, what he's getting at is that there is something unique in the early church about these, um, th- these offices of leadership. The, the apostle, that, that word um, literally means messenger or sent one. And so the apostles were those who were commissioned by God. They were sent by God to proclaim the good news. And as part of that, that part of that involved planting churches and um, overseeing them and nurturing them. Prophets did something a little bit different. They proclaimed truth, um, but they did so with a more prophetic voice. Um, They proclaimed God's will by divine revelation. Sometimes it involved foretelling the future, but not always and not even usually. And I think that's a helpful point because I think when we think of prophets, maybe we think that their main responsibility was to foretell the future. And that actually was not the case. It was simply to declare God's will by his revelation to them. Now, as we try to get into this word mystery more and understand it, we also need to take a step back. And I need to tell you about the mystery religions in the first century. Have you ever heard of the mystery religions? Well, the mystery religions, they were, they were odd. Um, really, they were these, um, these groupings of people, these networks of people that were really opened, only open to the privileged few. And they were highly intellectual, very esoteric, um, very abstract, and very exclusive. It was typically the case that only cultural elites were a part of these mystery religions. And then depending on the mystery religion, there was all kinds, from our perspective, all kinds of weird stuff that was going on in those, um, including how people were initiated uh, into them. But the only way that you could get into one of the mystery religions was from the outside in. In other words, you had to be invited. And if you weren't elite, if you weren't privileged, you were not going to be invited into one of these mystery religions. So you have to realize that part of the background here in Ephesus, the context, is these mystery religions, that the the Christians in the church of Ephesus would have obviously been aware of these. And Paul is wanting to speak to that, speak to that knowledge that they had 
of the mystery religions. What he's really doing here he, with the word mystery, he's taking a word that was used in the surrounding culture and he's drawing it into the story of God to uh, tweak it and use it for different purposes. What Paul means by mystery and all that comes along with it is that something new has been brought into existence. Something the world has never, ever seen. It's unique. It's unlike the Greek mystery cults because it's not esoteric. It's not abstract knowledge only for the privileged, for the upper class, for the racially superior, for the spiritual elites. No. The mystery of God that Paul is speaking of is, has been revealed to include all kinds of people. This is the innovation, if you will, of the Christian faith in the first century. Now, for us, you know, that I don't know how you heard that, how you responded to that, but for the folks who would have been in the churches in Ephesus and for other disciples of Jesus in the region, this was mind-blowing. It was mind-blowing because similar to our context today, and we'll talk more about this as we close out, division is what we are so in touch with, isn't it? Division among lines of race, among lines of class, among lines of culture. We are so accustomed to hostility and all that comes along with that. And um, so as Paul speaks of this to the church in Ephesus and to anyone else who would have heard this idea, this concept of the unifying of all kinds of different people would have been stunning. It would have been astonishing. And I am sure that there would have been people, maybe like yourself even now, that were skeptical. Skeptical because, I don't know, that just is so foreign. That's not what we see elsewhere. How could this actually be true? How could this become a reality? But Paul is wanting to drive this home. The mystery that's being revealed is that the Christian faith is open to all kinds of people who place their faith in Jesus Christ. Because a couple different times um, in this section, Paul explicitly uh, points to Jesus, right? I mean, all throughout, but beginning with verse 3, when he says that he's imprisoned for Christ. I mean, this is amazing. That's an amazing statement. Because Paul is, as we already said, physically, literally imprisoned, but he's thinking about his imprisonment for grander purposes, for the purposes that Christ is fulfilling in the world. And then at the end of this section, in verse 11, he says, this was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Christ stands at the center of God's story. Christ stands at the center of human history. And God's intention through the person and work of Jesus Christ is to bring together, to unify all kinds of different people in the world. He makes mention of the fact that he has written about this briefly. Well, where did he do that? He could be referring to verses 11 through 22 of chapter 2, where he talks about how the dividing wall of hostility has been broken down and Jew and Gentile now uh, have come together in God's family through Christ. 
But I, I think that he is specifically referring back to the verses that uh, we had on the screen a few moments ago. Because remember, in those verses, early on in the letter, it would have been verses 9 and 10, he speaks of the mystery. He speaks of the mystery. He says, he has, again, he has made known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. So he has referred to this, he's written about it briefly already. And this is where the, 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 these two things come together, and this is really uh, cool to see. What is the mystery that Paul is speaking about in verses 9 through 10? The mystery is that we are brought into God's purposes for the world. And his purpose for the world is to unite all things in Christ. In other words, all that has been damaged all that has been fractured, all that has been broken as a result of the fall, as a result of sin, God's purpose is to restore that, to make it all whole, to put it back together through the work of Jesus. Now, here are how these things connect. I could ask it this way. What is going to be the example of that? How is the world going to know that what the, the, the goal of history is the unification, uh, the, the reuniting of all things that have been broken and damaged because of sin in Christ. How is the world going to know? You know what Paul's answer is? Look at these churches. Look at these churches and the people that they consist of. Where else in the world, where else in the Roman Empire do you see this? Where do you see people of different races, people of different classes, people of different cultures together unified in one family? For Paul, that was the hard evidence that verses 9 and 10 of chapter 1 is true. Here's what this means. When we talk about issues such as racial reconciliation and um, reconciliation among lines of class and culture... The implication of this is that those are not side issues, all right? Those aren't side issues. They are central to the message of the gospel. And this isn't me making this up. Paul is outlining this for us here in this chapter, that how is the world going to know that the gospel is true? It's because of the horizontal uh, impact and influence and implications of the gospel, as we are brought together as diverse people who have, di have diverse stories and backgrounds. It's not a side issue. It's central to the gospel. This is what God is doing in the world, according to Paul. And you have to realize that and it's so hard for us to put ourselves in the shoes of the people in this, this letter that Paul was writing to. But the relationship between Jews and Gentiles historically was one of division. It was one of hatred. It was one of hostility, that word that Paul used in the last chapter. They would have been suspicious of each other. And so for these people to come together in one body was no small feat. Something happened. There had to be something that transcended culture, that transcended race, that transcended class, that was able to bring these, to, these people together. And Paul is saying it is the good news of Jesus. 
Jesus is the great unifier. Look at verse 6. He says about this mystery, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. The words, each of these in the Greek begins with a form of the word with. And so he he speaks of the Gentiles as co-inheritors, co-body members, co-partakers. And when Paul speaks of co-body members, members of the same body, the word that he uses there in the Greek is a word that had not been used in the Greek up until this point. And it's likely the case, it's possibly the case, that Paul coined this term. And he's wanting to communicate this stunning reality that Jews now along with, or Gentiles now along with Jews through faith in Jesus are part of the same family. They are in one body. And this promise, what is this promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel? It's the promise in which Gentiles and Jews together participate in the world being made right through Christ. Now, I'm imagining for you, regardless of whether you are a believer in Jesus or not at this point, that your mind can't help but to go to, all right, if all of this is true, if this theology, if this teaching is true, what has gone wrong? What has gone wrong? You know, it could be that you have shown up this morning and, I don't know, maybe this is your first time in a church uh, setting in months, in years. I I have no idea. But I wonder how many of you are jaded by the fact that you, as you, your encounters with the church, as you look at the church, they don't match, reflect, or align with what we're talking about here. I mean, that's, that's my experience to some extent. You know, as I've wrestled with this passage throughout the week, like this has been a a real source of struggle for me. Like I I want this reality. I want this reality for my own life. I want this reality for our church, but it's not yet reality. So why? Why is it far from the reality throughout history? It's particularly in our country. I'm obviously most familiar with that because this is the the country I was born and raised in, but it's also true of, of other places around the world. And there are all kinds of, uh, of factors and reasons for this. But if we break it all down, it comes back to sin. You see, in the same way that the gospel has both vertical and horizontal impacts, sin has both vertical and horizontal impacts. Sin obviously affects our relationship with God. It creates separation. Well, guess what sin does among one another? It creates separation. And so the question is this, what must happen for this to be reality? Well, there there are a lot of things that need to happen. But one of the things that needs to happen is that the gospel needs to always remain front and center, doesn't it? The gospel needs to transcend and trump everything else. Our our, our cultural uh, backgrounds, um, our ethnicities, whatever it might be, because if we simply just focus on those things, what we're going to do is we're going to elevate those things, 
And we are going to look to find superiority over other people who are different from us. And this is the power and the beauty of the gospel. That through faith in Jesus Christ, we are given a new identity. We are made into a new person. We're made into new people. And guess what? That does not mean that that erases our cultures. It doesn't mean that it erases our, 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 our ethnicities. In fact, it enhances them. But what it does mean is that we share in an identity that brings us all together, that transcends those, that allows us to be one family. And so what I'm saying is that we, we, we need to keep the gospel front and center, but along with saying that, we need to keep not only um, the vertical focus front and center, we must also keep the horizontal focus front and center. They belong together. Now, as we finish off this passage, verse 7, of this gospel, I was made a minister. So now we're going to ask the question, how is the mystery made known today? The mystery is what? That Jew and Gentile, are, are through faith in Christ, are in the same family together. In other words, to put it into our, our language, because of Jesus, people who have diverse stories and backgrounds are made into one family together. That is the mystery of the gospel. And that is incredible to me. Because for many years, I always thought that the mystery simply had to do with Jesus that he now at this point in history is revealed as the Messiah. And that is part of what's going on here. But Paul is including the the work of the Messiah, how he brings Jew and Gentile together. That all as a whole is the mystery of the gospel. How is it made known today? Well, Paul says, of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace. That word minister, it it also means servant. It's, It's a word of humility. And I'm sure that Paul is connecting it back to this idea that the calling that God has placed on his life, he views so highly that he is to be a good steward of it. He's to be responsible with this calling. And he refers to the uh, unsearchable riches of Christ going down to verse 8. He speaks of himself as the the, the least of all of these in verse 8, the least of all the saints. Paul knows his story. He knows what he's capable of. If you're not familiar with Paul, he was actually one who persecuted the church before he came to know Jesus. He he hated Christians. He killed Christians. So he knows what he's capable of. So when he says that, it's not a false humility. It's a real humility. Paul has a a deep self-awareness. He knows his story well. And so he, he, he recognizes that the ministry he does comes out of that place. It comes out of that posture. And then in verse 9, he kind of summarizes the purpose of his calling once again in different language. To bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. And then here we go. You ready? So that through the church... The manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. What in the world is Paul talking about? I mean, that's pretty lofty language, isn't it? What is he referring to? Well, he's speaking of God's wisdom. And, And what is he equating God's wisdom to? Well, it's God's plan. What is his plan? 
His plan is to unite all things that have been broken and fractured because of the fall in Christ. More specifically, what is the plan or, or, or what is the evidence of that? It's in his bringing together people who were formerly divided into one family. So God's, that, that's God's wisdom that Paul's referring to. God's plan to create a diverse family of people in Jesus. And he, he uses this word manifold. Manifold, one commentator says that it means multiply multicolored. It's kind of tongue-tying to say that, but, but I really love that. Multiply multicolored. It has to do with taking various forms or, or many different kinds. It, it conveys the sense that God's wisdom takes on very glorious, brilliant forms. But I want you to make the connection, or I want to help you make the connection. How does this manifest itself? How is it revealed? In a church made up of people who have diverse stories and backgrounds. Are you seeing it? How does God manifest his, his wisdom to the world? It's through a church that is made up of people who have diverse stories and backgrounds. In other words, it takes people who have diverse stories and backgrounds to reflect who God is and to reflect what is at the heart of the gospel in the horizontal plane and bringing people together. Multiply, multicolored. It's meant to describe God's wisdom, but it's also meant to describe the church of Jesus. And then what he says after that is at least confusing to me and sounds even crazy a little bit. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Now, this is a theme for Paul, to speak of rulers and authorities in heavenly places, these spiritual beings. And two or three weeks ago, we got into this a little bit. It won't be the last time that we come across this language. And for now, I'll just say this, that for Paul, and as part of the Christian story, the Christian worldview, there are real dark spiritual forces alive in the world, dark spiritual powers. And these dark spiritual powers uh, impact our earthly realities through uh, personal, uh, in personal ways, but also, also through human institutions. And so what Paul is doing here is he's saying that as Jew and Gentile come together, as people uh, from different races, cultures, and classes are brought together in Jesus it cries out to these dark spiritual forces that you will not win. Your intention is to divide, to create hostility. But Paul is saying that God's purpose in the church is to scream at those dark spiritual forces that they know that they are already a defeated foe. And the hard evidence is found in the local church. How? Well, part of the answer, a big part of the answer, is simply in their very life together. The very fact that they have been brought together is the evidence of this. By the very fact that the church is a new humanity with an identity in Jesus that transcends all other things, this is the major way in which these divisions were brought down in the first century in the life of the church the church, get this now, the church reveals 
The mystery of the gospel reveals the secret in its life together. As we wrap up here, there's a quote that I want to um, share with you. It comes from one of my all-time favorite books called The Provocative Church. The author is Graham Tomlin. And he says, For Paul, the hard evidence that God will one day bring all things together under Christ is found in these small Christian communities scattered around the Roman Empire, which are busy uniting Gentile and Jew, free people and slaves, women and men. This is, if you like, the sneak preview of the exhibition, the trailer for the main feature yet to be shown. Think of God as a master artist, and he's creating this magnificent exhibition for the world to look on at, to see. And what is the, the, the trailer for that? How do we know that this master artist really is at work creating such a masterpiece? It's through the church, through communities of Jesus who work hard because of the gospel, because of the work that Jesus has done, because of the grace that has been extended to us. We work hard towards reconciliation and unity, particularly among pe- with, with people who are different from us. And this is what we as a church want to work hard at. Unlike the mystery religions, we don't want our faith to be abstract. We don't want it to be esoteric. We want it to be fleshed out in real living. We want our city. Now, I want you to think about this. I mean, this has been true in, in different ways throughout history, but you don't need me to tell you how tribalism is alive and well today in our country. Racism, classism, nationalism, division, hostility. Like, these are things that we are so used to and accustomed to, right? And the church is meant to be a window into God's plan, a picture of something else, something different. In other words, there is an incredible opportunity that Jesus is holding out to us. There's an incredible opportunity for us to be an alternative community, for us to be something different than the world knows. And so we're going to work hard. We're going to work hard at proclaiming the gospel of grace and how it restores our vertical relationship to God, but we're also going to work hard at proclaiming the gospel of grace and how it reconciles us to one another across lines of race, class, and culture. Because I want you to share in my heart, my dream, my vision, that is not just my dream, heart, and vision, but it's that of our leadership at this point in time. We want to invite you into this, that what Paul describes here in the letter to the Ephesians can be a reality for us by God's grace. And so may we pursue this. I've said numerous times throughout this series already, it's going to require everything from us. It's going to to, um, require us to die to self, to let go of our preferences, and be willing to, um, as Paul describes in, in another letter, that we might be servants, that we might, but because of joy, that we might pursue unity in purpose, as he talks about in Ephesians chapter two, that we might consider others better 
than ourselves. And so I invite you to pray, to pray along with myself, our leadership, that as we, now, now here's the thing, we, we don't want to pursue this vision because there's this opportunity in our cultural moment. I mean, part of that is true, right? We, we look at our, our, our city, we look at our region, we look at our world, and it's so divided, it's so hostile, and we could say, there's a strategic opportunity for us to show people that the gospel is true and real, so let's try to come together as people who have diverse stories and backgrounds to prove this to the world. I mean, part of that is true, right? But we want to pursue this because this is God's vision laid out in his word. And I'll say it this way, because that's God's vision for his church in the world, it's relevant, it's strategic. And as we pursue this together, there will be be people who will look in at it and say, what is happening there? What is different? I want to get in on that. Let's pray. Father in heaven, these things that we speak of are so big and grand. It's easy to speak of them, or at least easier. We pray that you would empower us with your spirit. We pray that you would root us in a true and deep vision of the gospel. We thank you that because of Jesus, because of your grace, we can come home to you in relationship, the one who we were made for. And we pray that as we get to know you more deeply, in our lives, that it would open our eyes to the implications of this grace in our lives and how it has invaded us. I pray that we would, you would shape and form us into a people who pursue hard things, who are willing to step into the areas of our culture that are so hostile and so divided in order to represent you, in order to both proclaim and enact the truth of the gospel. Part of me is suspicious, Father, if I'm honest. I doubt that this could be true because of what I'm so accustomed to in my own life, in the church, in the world around me. But, but this can become reality because it's your plan. Make your plan our plan, we pray, for the glory of Jesus and for the good of so many people in our city and region. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.